Hello and welcome to episode 24 of Matches and the Other Guy. And you join Kevin and me on a beautiful sunny afternoon here on the banks of Lake Wiley in Charlotte. Kevin, what do you make of this marvellous day? I think we're getting our first real taste of spring. I think there's really some temptation uh, showing up and saying, here's what's to come. And I'm very glad to see it. It's not, it's not overly warm, I must say, sitting here on the, on the porch, uh, but it is beautifully sunny, so that's, that's, a, yes, that's a sign of good days coming, I think. Yep. What have you got to tell us today? Well, before we get rolling on our topic today, I just wanted to remind the listeners, too, that uh, we're glad that you're joining us each week and we can see the consistency in that. Uh, we'd also love for you to spread the word. Uh, don't keep this uh, as a big secret. Tell your friends, tell your family, get them involved. We'd love to have them uh, along with us as well. <laughs> That's right. The more, the merrier. <laughs> we always invite you to pull up a chair and join us on the bank of, banks of Lake Wiley. So, I mean, I think virtually we can take as many people to join the party as possible, can't we? There's no limit on the numbers of people we can invite down here. No, let's keep <laughs> let's let's go global. <laughs> That's right. Now, what are we going to be talking about? An episode twenty-four, loosely going to be talking about. Well, speaking of uh, said listeners, we got another uh, suggestion from uh, Jake and Sarah that wrote us and said that one of the topics they'd like to hear about is libations. Libations, yes, which is a posh word for drinks, isn't it? Exactly. Yes. Well, that, yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. Well, start us off then. So, yeah. um, now, now, before we get started on, let's say, alcoholic drinks, beverages, I've always been a bit, bit baffled by the word beverage, why, why, why we don't just use the word drink, but I mean, that, that's probably something else. That's another episode, probably. Um, I know that you don't drink coffee, and I'm, I've been addicted to it for many years, certainly from when I'm working in Formula One uh, for an Italian team. Um, but you also told me you've never had a cup of coffee. No. Yeah. Never one. And I, I, I guess, again, it goes, I think, back to, you know, what your parents did at home. There was just never, you know, a coffee pot brewing in the house, yeah. other than mom having bridge club, like we've mentioned before. But it so just wasn't a thing that was there. It's, yeah. not that you don't, it's not that you don't like coffee, really. It's simply that it's never been a part of your life. Well, I've never had a cup full to try it. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, I- I guess there's a part of me that says, well, I guess if I've gotten this far, I just don't need it. I mean, yeah. it's you know, something I'd kind of, you know, I know people like, want to come off so much caffeine. Maybe I don't don't need it anyway. Yes. Now, I love tea. Uh, like, you know, I'm being from the South, sweet tea. And I, I can't have too much of that. That's just a big sugar bomb. But uh, yes. it is wonderful. But I will get a lot of half and half tea now and again. Uh, yes. Tea, iced tea. Oh, yeah. 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 I've had hot tea and I'm okay with it. Uh, it's just not, you know, like from your culture, it's quite a thing. But uh, you know, occasionally I'll have a hot tea, but it is very rare. Yeah, I mean, if you ask for if you ask for iced tea in England, I mean, things may have changed now. But when I was growing up as a kid, certainly if you ask for iced tea in England, no one would know what on earth you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. Well, even here in the states, you go up north to a certain <laughs> extent, and you tell them you want sweet tea, and they'll look at you like you got lobsters crawling out your ears. Really? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. isn't that strange? Yes. Okay. So that's uh, tea, tea and coffee. I'm always com- um, um, baffled by coffee. I know uh, it's, it seems to come and go in popularity and, and approval from medical sources. Stop drinking coffee. No, you're okay to drink coffee. You should drink three liters of water a day. Don't count tea and coffee. Do count tea and coffee. <laughs> I, I never know what I'm doing right or wrong any longer. Well, the same thing goes when we start talking about drinks here a little bit. You know, Some say have a glass of wine each day. Some yeah. say a beer is good for you each day. And then some may say not. I, you know. I don't know. Everything in moderation. I, I like that idea. Personally. That's probably a good, good policy. Yes. 
Well, um, being English um, and therefore being surrounded by the pub culture and the pub being the centre of village life, um, I grew up around that. And so being around alcohol um, was nothing unusual to me at all. Um, We were always, as kids, being taken into the pub with our parents and we would sit there and not say a single word. Uh, we're, you know, not allowed to speak as the grown-ups were playing cards or dominoes and having a beer on a Sunday night. Uh-huh. And uh, I distinctly remember having a packet of cheese and onion crisps, uh, chips, as we used to say in the yep. States, um, and a little bottle of Tizer or some equivalent pop or soda. Uh, but I was always surrounded by a pub life. And moving into teenage years... Uh, we would we would meet at the pub, you know. So it was kind of, everybody met at the pub. It was really that's what the pub was for. It was just a meeting area, and uh, the one local uh, village bobby, um, he knew where everybody was, so he was okay with it. Like, all right, everyone's in the pub. We know where you are. You're not causing any trouble. You're not vandalising the one phone box in the village and yeah. all of that, you know. So it was, it was perfectly fine with it. It's very different culture in the States, isn't it, surrounding alcohol? Oh, very much so. Yeah. I mean, at that, well, from back then, what was the age that you could order a pint or something? And then what, what age were you <laughs> gosh, well, actually ordering gosh, one? Gosh, I ought to get this right. I think it was, um, I think, 16 we're allowed to go in the pub unaccompanied by parents. Okay. And I think 18 is when you could order a beer. Okay. I th- again, Google and Wikipedia will tell me that's not correct, but I think that's about right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in my case, all of that really never came into question because I was an extremely late bloomer. Mm. I didn't have my first be- alcoholic beverage drink, whatever you want to call it, yeah. until I was, I think, 22. Okay. Um, I had no interest in it prior. And again, I think it's part of, again, what you experience at home. Mom never had any. Yeah. Um, Dad was very rare. In fact, I mean, the only time I can remember, he used to travel out west occasionally. And sometimes traveling, he would bring back a six-pack of Coors beer. Yeah. Because back then, you couldn't get Coors in the, you know, our part of the country in the the southeast. Yeah. Go back to your smoking the bandit <laughs> smuggling yeah. stories. Yeah, but uh, so he always, you know, would pick up one and bring back, and then I can kind of remember he would keep like maybe a couple of cans of Bush in the refrigerator, and he would have maybe one after it was really hot. We lived in Florida, and he it was really hot, and he'd mow the lawn. Not not every time, maybe yeah. once every fifth time. Yeah. So there was just no you know regular thing of that, and. To be honest, I've always said I think a lot of it comes from what I would see on TV and movies where, okay, people drink to excess, they get sick, they throw up, and they're a mess. I was like, well, that looks like fun. No, I just, I'm like, I I really don't want to do that. Thank you very much. Yes. So I just really honestly had no interest in it. And two, the people around me, I just don't remember being around kids in high school that that was their big thing. Yeah. Not that I didn't go to the parties. You know, where, where, you know, plenty of people were. Sure. In fact, it was so funny. One of them, I still remember, and this was a big one, and it got raided by the police. Well, I just sat there on the couch just smiling because I hadn't had a drop all night. I wasn't going to be in any kind of trouble. <laughs> I was just watching the chaos because I'm like, y'all can, yes. can ask me or give me any test you want. I'm good to go. On the other side of the Atlantic growing up and looking over to America through 
TV shows and movies uh, and books in later years, I always got the impression that you guys over here in the States were, um, you had far more, I'm going to use the word draconian because I can't think of anything better, but far more draconian rules on on alcohol consumption than ever we did uh, in England. And during my years, uh, 15 years, I, I lived in France. I lived down in Bordeaux and very close to Cognac. I mean, a stone's throw away from Cognac, which is famous for one thing. Yeah. It's brandy production. And Bordeaux, which is, again, famous for one thing, some of the finest wines in the world, grown on the little Bordeaux peninsula of the Medoc. And mainland Europe, I'm thinking particularly Italy, Spain, and France. Portugal, perhaps, but I've got very little uh, knowledge of working knowledge of Portugal. Um, all families were surrounded by wine on the table every day. And yeah. I think the kids were, uh, the kids would have a little glass of wine topped up with water. So they would get used to it. So it wasn't mm. such a big shock to them to have a glass of wine later. And I, I found alcoholism didn't seem to be a big problem. And folks just accepted it because it was around all the while. Yeah. It lost this weird mystique that it was, yeah, it, was part of, it was part of your life and your yeah. upbringing and your culture. Whereas it wasn't something to sneak off and, and, and try to get and then go to excess because you only had a certain amount of time. It's, it's, it's exactly that, yes. But growing up as a kid um, in England, um, we never had wine. We never had wine. It was just something that very few posh families had. Uh-huh. Um, and we never had any access to it. I mean, I'm sure it was there, but we simply couldn't afford it. We may have had a bottle of sweet sherry, in the cocktail cabinet uh-huh. that was hardly ever opened, and Dad may have had a bottle of scotch in the cabinet that no one dared go anywhere near. <laughs> and uh, well, I think you said your dad would maybe have a little glass of sherry on Christmas Eve, or and something. that would be about yeah. it. Yes, a very very little alcohol consumption, but beer consumption in the pubs was always a, a um, um, that was always the staple. And I do remember from my history lessons as a kid that. Uh, beer consumption at one time in England it was almost a health remedy because the water was potentially contaminated down in London for example oh really and so um, yeah in the typhoid epidemics uh, and so the locals took to drinking what they would call small beer which is very weak beer almost like a shandy just because um, it was it was less contaminated Okay. And so it, it, it really did take on a whole new life, I suppose. Yeah. But when, when I moved to, to, to France in later years, I, I loved the, the mystique and the, mis, and the mystery and the history of wine and the great chateau of, of France. I liked all of that. Yeah. Particularly around the Medoc. It was some of those incredible vineyards. Chateau Mouton Rothschild, for example one of the finest wines in the world and the vintage each year is sold before the grapes come off the vine stock uh, which is great it must be a great business to be in exactly you know. if, if only yeah. <laughs> yes but all these great great wines are there and yet the area around the Medoc Santa Steph for example great name in, in, in French wine is a little almost like middle aged village that doesn't seem to have been touched for hundreds of years and so it's a wonderful sort of a law, this great, this great contrast or dichotomy, if you like, between the world's most expensive wines, let's say, for argument's sake, and, and the very 
down-to-earth, basic, simplistic way they are made. I like all of that. It's kind of oh, yeah. it's a fun thing. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 you know, there's so so many that are you know very very versed in in the history and and the different vin- vintages and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, it can be a really good you know hobby for some. You know, oh absolutely, enjoying that, all that and yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I say I was a late bloomer. Now, granted, I think I think I do remember we were in the Keys when I was 14 because it was summer of '83, and we we're coming. We'd spent the day. Part of us had gone down to, to Key West. This was like the parents were driving. And on the way back, they had a, I was joking around, they had a little cooler, and they had these little tiny beers. They were like a half can. And I don't think they oh, sell really? it anymore. Yeah. And it was a Budweiser. And I asked, I, jokingly, if I could have one. And they were like, all right. But I got two sips, and I just could not. And they were like, just pass it up here. <laughs> but I was like, to this day, I wish I had downed that thing, because the other guys would have been so impressed. <laughs> but, so... So I had that, and then, you know, again, Dad would have those, you know, maybe once when he, you know, did the lawn or some occasionally, and I'd, I'd try a sip and just like, nope, still don't like it, moving on. And then one time we were at one of their, another family that we'd go visit. They didn't have any children, but, um, or their children were much older and out of the house, but uh, I remember we were there when, when I was a teenager or something. This was back in Knoxville when we were visiting, so I was, you know, probably 16, 17, yeah. and they let me have a wine cooler. You know, with those Bartles and James or whatever it yeah. was back in the day. So I had one of those, kind of thinking that was a big deal. You know, all through that first part of college, I just really had no interest in it. And then what happened was we were down, a bunch of us guys went down on spring break to Destin, Florida. Okay. Down the Panhandle. Okay. And we were staying in a condo, so we're, you know, nobody was driving anywhere. They were like, you know, we're going to go walk on the beach and... Kevin, we want to make you make you a drink. And I finally was like, all right, again, nobody's driving. We're perfectly safe here, and nobody's going to do anything stupid. <laughs> right. I said, I'll let you all make me a drink. Yeah. Well, they'd already had a few anyway, so their mixing skills were a little askew. And they came up with this grape Kool-Aid, whatever was in it. It wasn't even that cold in this, like, 32-ounce drink bottle, you know, or just like a cup. So we go walking the beach, and I'm kind of lagging behind, you know, kind of going along. And I'd, I'd sip a little bit, and I'd pour out a little bit, and I'd sip a little bit, and I'd pour out a little bit. And they're like, how's that drink? Hey, it's great. You know, hey, you know, whatever. Yeah. Well, I, find, I did finish it, and then as nature calls, I said, well, I'm going to go up here behind the dunes. And I noticed that I was crossing the dunes. I was like, my legs aren't working like they normally used to. <laughs> so I was like, so that's mm. what this is all about. <laughs> so... We, we come in from that evening. Well, the next day, everybody's fine. We're going to go out to lunch. A lot of time we hit Subway and get their, you know, a foot-long sub or something like that. And I said, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right. So I went to, uh, we went one by the liquor store, and I bought a, a bottle of Absolute. I got some uh, club soda. I got some Collins mix. I got some lemons and limes. And we got back, and later, we, we did end up meeting a group of girls, too, and they were all hanging out in the condo. So I'm over there. I look like I was Tom Cruise in Cocktail. I had this thing, and I was shaking it up, and I was pouring the things, and, and these girls were, like, going, this is so delicious. <laughs> I was like, you know, like I'm an expert or something. But that, that became my, my latter years of college. I would uh, make made myself one of those. If we were having a, a party that evening or something like that, it was always, I guess you'd call it a vodka Collins. Yes. So, and to this day, that's usually my drink of, if I'm going to have a cocktail somewhere, it'll be a vodka Collins yes. or something. I have no idea, no interest in a Tom Collins because that's gin. I'll use a vodka drink, I'll be fine. Or Cape Cod, which is what, vodka and cranberry. You know, I'll do something like that maybe. Yes, that's another thing that the, in the States, looking over, again, looking over f- from England growing up, you guys 
really were on top of cocktails <laughs> so much more than ever it was in England. And the idea of a, a martini and a martini shaker, although uh, we all know Ian Fleming's James Bond was a cocktail fan, um, we never really used to have cocktails, but I do, I do remember seeing those wonderful cocktail mixers in steak restaurants in the States. Oh, yeah. and, oh wow, what a wonderful thing. To, I couldn't wait to have a martini. But I do, you've just jogged my memory now, one of the first, one of the first alcoholic drinks I had. Um, I was in Yugoslavia, the form, what is now uh, the former Yugoslavia, uh, now Croatia, and uh, with my parents and with my auntie Phil, who used to run the pub, and my uncle Lionel Buck, uh, Phil and Lionel, we were staying at a little, little village near the town of Dubrovnik, which is a beautiful walled town. And um, mum and dad had gone to bed, I think, Auntie Phil had gone to bed, and I was trying to trying to find my uncle Lionel, see where he disappeared to. Anyway, surprise, surprise, he sat at the bar, one little bar at the at the, at the hotel, and I sidled up to him and sit uh, sit on the bar stool at the side to him, and he said to me, "What would you like to drink?" And I don't know what made me do it, but I said I would love a vodka. I probably didn't even really know what vodka was. Uh-huh. Frankly, I must have watched some TV show, and. Um, he he said to the he said to the the, the, the bartender, give the lad a vodka. It's his first drink, and so I had a little shot of vodka. <laughs> and I do remember we walked outside the hotel and sat on a couple of chairs, and it's a very basic little hotel overlooking the sea, and in the distance. Now it's again it was nine it was night time about I want to say it was about ten o'clock at night. We could see in the distance, although there was still a little bit of light. There was a storm way off in the distance, like a lightning storm in the distance. It wasn't raining where we were, but it was clearly raining way off on the horizon. And I just remember sitting with my uncle, and we stayed there for about an hour, two hours, just watching the storm. And I remember him turning to me, um, and he said, it's someone else's storm, which has always stuck with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah great memory. Yeah, great memory of uh, that little vodka drink, yeah. What other what other cocktail stories have you? Oh got? well, I mean after that, now that again that was still in college, so that became like my like say I'd have that in a in a party setting or something like that, make my own or something like that. Yeah. Well, I still wasn't big on the beer, but um, you know inevitably it's around all the time. You know, and uh, my buddy Martin, I was always hanging out with him and stuff, and he, he was a, a Sigma Chi um, in the fraternity, so I was often at, at their parties and stuff like that. Right, and. I'll never forget how proud he was of me when I, I finished a full Miller Lite. He's like, you finally had a whole beer. <laughs> there you go. And I actually yeah. finished a Miller Lite. So that, that weaned me. Yeah. And then I was able to slowly, you know, and he always said, he said, you know, it's, he said it's an acquired taste and, you know, eventually you'll, you'll get there. Yeah. And then it started slowly getting into that where, you know, we'd be out and I'd have a pitcher. Well, I wouldn't have a pitcher. We'd share a pitcher and I might have a little bit more and stuff like that. So then I, you know, kind of started. And then later... You know, you start trying the other types of beers, and I've grown to appreciate them. You know, now now I like you know an amber. Yeah, uh, that's kind of my favorite. Um, a lot of people, you know, nowadays IPAs are real popular, but I I'm still not a big fan of those. They're they're just too bitter for me. Yeah, so I do like an IPA, Indian Pale Ale mm-hmm. or India Pale Ale, I should say. Really, my and my uh, understanding of IPA beers, uh, it, they they were introduced to India. Uh, during the colonial days, uh, when there were a lot of British forces over there, and th- they were drinking a lot of beer to keep cool, 
I'm not sure if that really, really worked, frankly, but that was the idea. So that's where the name India Pale Ale came from. It was made really for, for British troops over in, in India. Yeah. You just reminded me of another story, actually, thinking about different, different beers. This is a little, little Guinness story. And we know that uh, bottled Guinness has a very distinctive, different taste and appearance, not well, taste, appearance more than anything else, than, than draft Guinness, which is supplied, draft Guinness is poured with nitrogen. And that, that alters the look of the Guinness. A bottled Guinness is a very different thing. Anyway, I was in a, I was in a pub in Loughborough. Uh, I would have been about 25, a little group of us were in there. Uh, and there was a salesman in there. I can't remember what it, what it was what it was selling, but anyway, it was a local. But it was, his, his business was sales, uh, and we got talking about the difference between bottled Guinness and draft Guinness, and we were talking about the fact that yeah, they're very different things. And he said last time he was in Ireland, let's say it was a hotel in Dublin. In the hotel room was a six pack of bottled Guinness, but with the with the bottled Guinness was a little syringe. Like a little air syringe, oh. and he said, "If you, it, the idea was, you'd open the, you take the top off the Guinness bottle, and it was fundamentally flat, but with this little, little syringe, you injected air into the into the bottle of Guinness, and it magically brought the Guinness to life." Wow! And and um, better living through chemistry. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and we remember thinking, this sounds so unlikely, because we'd never seen these Guinness bottles, you know. A lot of tall tales get, get told in the pub, as you can imagine, and we think, well, this, this can't be a real thing. But actually, fairly recently, only within the last few years, I did look online. I don't know what made me do this or recall this story. I looked online, but sure enough, and I'm sure... I'm sure it's still there online. I'm sure Google can support this. This this idea of a little six bottles of of Guinness with an air an air syringe is a is a real thing. So I was very surprised, and it took me uh, many many years to actually finally get the truth of it. Really, it really does work that way. How it works, I've no idea. But yes. Well, another um, going kind of back to the, this was after not too long after college, but. We were a lot of us that had gone that had gone to school together ended up working together um, at the clothing company where we did advertising. Well, we were up at, at an event at Ober Gatlinburg yeah, in okay. Tennessee, yeah, the ski resort, and we, we we did a co thing with the radio station, and so we were one of the sponsors or something like that. So we went up for the evening. It was a night ski. People had won tickets to come to and all this kind of thing. So we're all kind of up there and. I went up. I love skiing, so few of us went skiing, you know. But I still remember coming off that mountain into the, like the uh, chalet, and I was just so parched. And the, the guys that didn't ski, they had already just they just been hanging out in there at a table. And I said, "Can I have that one?" And they had a full mug of, of beer, and I downed that in three swigs. One, two, three, <laughs> bam! Because I was just so parched. I just and. So then I was kind of settling in, and they were like, well, we, you know, we've been here, and we think we're going to go back into town, in, into Gatlinburg, and we'll go find a little bar down there, because here at the Chalet, things are just more expensive. I mean, obviously, you're paying kind of resort prices. Yeah. If you've ever been to Ober-Gatlinburg, the way you get there is you're, you take a tram, one of the old Swiss-type trams. In fact, the, oh, the, wow. the, the company that made it is a Swiss company. It's a genuine European Swiss, tr- Swiss tram, yeah. and you, take, uh, you leave from the town, and you go up over this little mountain thing, and it takes you about 20 minutes. And then you, you get off at the ski resort, ski, and then you come back down on the tram. I think there is a service road you can actually go, but nobody ever does. Okay. So we said, well, we'll just go down here in a little bit. He said, let's get one more round up here. So 
it was they, they gave me the charge of going to the, the bar and getting us one more round. So I go to the bar and I said, you know, I need, you know, eight eight mugs of Miller Lite. And I just happened to mention that we're with the radio station. And the guy just goes, Oh, here. And didn't charge me a nickel, didn't ask for anything. And so I went back with this big tray of beer, set them on the table, and looked at everybody and said, we're not going anywhere. <laughs> Apparently, the tab is paid for for that evening by the radio station. Oh, dear. So needless to say, it became more of a very interesting evening as we, we stayed. Well, the radio station the next day is thinking, well, I never expected the tab to be quite this impressive. <laughs> well, the other interesting point, we had to get back down into town so I, I remember getting I remember getting on the tram to head down, and you probably are, they're kind of like a subway. They had those straps that would hang from the yes, ceiling you could, yeah. if you're standing, yeah. and they were a good thick solid leather. Yeah, and in there really good. Thank goodness because I was using those like an Olympic gymnast. I was flipping upside down, had my feet on the ceiling. Ah, uh, the joys of alcohol. Uh, yeah, I, I was a little more adventurous that evening, <laughs> I will say, and uh, you know I definitely knew it the next morning. So that was definitely one of the adventures. But that's the one thing, too. I will say in all those, quote, adventurous evenings, I can all remember them. So. Now, when we, when we first started working, we, my, my friends and I over in England, when we'd be 17, 18, 19, we used to go down the pub and have a beer. Uh, we couldn't really afford to be drinking uh, bitter beer, which is the more expensive beer. And lager was quite expensive. But there was a beer in England, which I think has almost disappeared now, called mild, as opposed to bitter, ah. uh, which is a much sweeter drink. But it was, it was significantly cheaper. It was a darker beer. It's almost like a malt beer, I suppose. Okay. Um, but it was, it was not particularly strong in alcohol. That's what, that's what made it cheap, I suppose. It was basically watered down in the, in the brewing process. Lighter alcohol, but darker beer than a bitter. Now, I remember this because only the other day I was rereading Orwell's 1984, which is my, one of my favorite books of all time. And there's a scene in that where Winston Smith, the lead character, goes into a pub, a London pub, and wants to talk to an old man in there and get his impressions of what life used to be like before the revolution without going into the great detail of the plot of the book, but talk about old London. And this, uh, this old chap, a Cockney chap, he went up to the bar and asked for a pint of wallop, W-A-L-L-O-P. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, the barman said to him, it's mild, I think, it's mild, mild is wallop. And I always remember thinking, I've heard that down in London. It's, ne- it's never an expression that happened, that existed up in, in the Midlands where I was from. But I think a pint of wallop is probably something folks may still now ask for, a pint of wallop in London. Yeah, there's definitely a little sub, sub names and stuff like that have become you know, cultural things for sure. Yes, and if we were feeling particularly uh, um, rich, which was, was, let's face it, was never, but on a, on a Friday when we were paid, and we were all paid in cash as apprentices, and we walked into the bar, we, the first drink we had to celebrate the weekend arrival may have been a pint of mild and bitter. It was half and half. Uh-huh. So it was a little bit posher than just drinking the mild, which was a cheaper option, but it, we couldn't afford an, an outright pint of expensive bitter gosh what a what a different life you know yeah. <laughs> it was back then we used to count every penny we had to. oh yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, it was well it's, i always say too you know it's like earlier in your career you know you you you're scrounging for everything but you live like kings 
Yes, the because you thing, enjoyed life so much, you know. And well, you don't need you don't need money to enjoy life. You just you know that, that's a complete myth, I think. The other thing I remember from pub life back in England in those days, I mean, I've never been a smoker, as we've chatted about before, but a few of my friends were, uh, but they could not afford a pack of 20 cigarettes, nor a pack of 10 cigarettes, which existed. I don't know if they existed in the States in packs of 10. They certainly did in England. Not being a smoker, I really couldn't. I think Um, they're 20 in a pack, and that's standard. Right, but in England, if you went to the pub, you could ask for... I think it was two or three, a pack of two or three cigarettes. And they would be in a slightly bigger carton than than would hold two or three. But the inside was kind of filled up with folded cardboard just to make a little tube that would hold two or three cigarettes. So it was just a cheaper option... just, just so you can have a cigarette and a beer, but yeah. without without having to find the money for a full pack of twenty cigarettes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, nowadays, I mean, it's it's kind of funny. It's evolved into this. Is you know, again, I, I now I can appreciate a, a good. I love having a nice, you know, pint of beer at a meetup or whatever. Or, yeah. Or, you know, but the the funny thing is, and you, you know, I've got one. We uh, put a kegerator when we redid our house that we're living in, so now we have it on tap at home. <laughs> Now, I will say that was more of my wife's pet project than really? mine, but uh, I've enjoyed it. I mean, you know, it's, it is nice because, and two, you don't have to have a full beer. You don't have to crack open one. Yeah. You're just, if I want a sip or two, I'll just pour it and move on, And but sometimes I'll have a full pint or something like that. And a lot of times, I mentioned before, I like to do it if I'm cooking. You know, I'll start cooking for the evening, and I'll you know pour some and just have it on the counter yeah. as I'm uh, doing that. I remember there was a company uh, talking about beer at home. There was a company in England when we were kids called Davenport, and they used to operate a delivery service, a bit like a milk float in England, to deliver the milk. Uh, but it was called Beer at Home. Beer at Home means Davenport. I mean, the advert was Beer at Home means Davenport's, and uh, it, it was around for years. And uh, for those listeners that may have read These Desired Things, when when dear old Mr. Goodman is telling me of his wartime experiences in the Great War when I was when I was 10 years old, I actually mentioned in that story that when I opened the pantry door in Mr. Goodman's house, there was always two bottles of Davenport's beer in the pantry keeping cool, you know, and just in the in the ambient temperature of the slightly cooler pantry. Oh. But that was a home delivery service back then. I don't, don't know. I'm sure they've gone out of business now, but they were around all the time. There used to be a service in the pubs. I think this only happened at weekend because at the weekend there were obviously more people in the pub. Uh, a, a chap used to come round with a with a wicker tray and sell seafood. So he would sell um, shrimps or prawns, as we're known as in England, yeah. little shrimps, yeah. or whelks or cockles or little bags. And he would have... Uh, so you'd open the little bag of, of seafood, and it'd be whelks or cockles or mussels or whatever he had. I think the service was called Kershaw's, but don't quote me on that. And he would have a little bottle of vinegar and salt and pepper, and he would open the bags and pour the salt, pepper, and vinegar onto the bag, and then hand you the bag with a little wooden fork to be able to pull the the, the whelks or the mussels out of the bag. That's a wonderful thing we just don't have here. You know, that's, that's yeah. such a neat little piece yeah. of, of culture there yes and he don't. wasn't the, so I'm sure it was Kershaw's the Kershaw man and folks used to say the Kershaw man's coming from the pub next door because okay. even in the smallest of villages I mean our, our little village was tiny but we had probably five or six pubs there and if you went to the towns I mean they were all over the place I mean most streets would have two or three pubs so there were there were hundreds of pubs 
But Kershaw's, he would he so he had his own business, his own little van, and Kershaw man would arrive, and he would go just go from pub to pub to pub. So you'd see him at least once a night. And if typically what we would do on a Friday or Saturday night is have one beer in one pub, and then move down to another pub and meet different friends there, and have uh-huh. another little drink there, and do that, and we'd wait till the Kershaw man would come round again, and we'd see him again for a second. Well, I take it there was there was time. there was no idea that, that they provided food at any of the pubs. It was all, only just the, the it, drinks. That and such. that came much later. In, yeah. in in my life at one time certainly when I was growing up as a, as a kid and my dad would meet his friends in the pub it was purely to have a beer you may get um, a pork pie and maybe a, a bag of crisp chips yeah I can see maybe those salted nuts maybe yeah. and that would be it um, and later on I think the idea was to try and encourage more people to come to the pub and get families into the pub why aren't we selling food? Let's put dinner and lunch on. And then the idea of the pub lunch came on board. But for many years, no, you can you can really find anything to eat. Not yeah. really. And the American, snacks, but that was it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. Here, the Americanized version. I'm sure you've tried many of them. Is, is you know what they will will create as a British pub is generally a restaurant. Yes. And you're going to find fish and chips on the menu, of course. You're yeah. going to find bangers and mash, and you know such like that. And then of course they usually have a nice selection of. Of beers, and but you could probably order any cocktail too, you know. Yes, so we used to have things like pickled eggs would be behind the bar, pickled onions most definitely behind the bar, and they were incredibly strong onions. I do remember that. Yeah. That would not be my thing. Incredibly strong, <laughs> nor the egg actually. <laughs> yeah, so is that? Then no, you no coffee, no and eggs. Then, yeah, no. And then pork pies. Um, yeah, but not really lunches and dinners. That came on, I'm going to guess, towards the end of the 70s and into the 1980s. Yeah. Yeah, when pub life really changed. Um, but pub, you know, pub life, I've never, in my experience, in my travels around the world, Scotland, of course, and Ireland and Wales, if you're thinking about the different nations that form Great Britain, they all they all have great pub culture. Um and everywhere has its different culture. Like, pub culture doesn't exist in France. Then it's it's little bars and taverns and cafes, the same as in Italy. The pub culture is not the same thing. Yeah. Uh, everywhere has its own version of that. Yeah, little street-side cafes. Well, I love that. During my years in France, it's just wonderful to sit outside on a little terrace table and have a coffee and a glass of wine. Yeah. It's something that you really couldn't do in England. And I like that idea of... Each culture in each country has its own unique approach to entertaining its guests. Yeah, I like, like that. Like a, I, you know, I haven't been to Italy, but I would imagine you know you can make, have some Chianti and yeah, you know, <laughs> talking about wonderful experiences. Um, we better wrap this episode up. That's soon gone again, isn't it? We always say that. This, well, we're nearly we get the right minutes. topic and roll with it. Yeah. Well, gentle listener. Um, both Kevin and I have got a bottle of water on the table, so we'll have a little sip of water. That'll be our libation for the day, but we hope you enjoy the rest of your day, and we'll uh, look forward to seeing you again on another episode of Matches in the Other Guy. We better say goodbye, Kevin. Bye. Stay hydrated. Yeah, bye for now. Cheers.